Well, what a great reminder about worship, amen? It's all about Him. It's not about us. Well, good morning. Last week we began what will ultimately be a four-week series on the doctrine of Holy Trinity, which really serves as the doctrine of our faith. It's the foundation of our faith. And so we looked at this doctrine, and we looked at the foundations of this doctrine by looking at three primary questions. And the first question was, what is the Trinity? What is the doctrine of Trinity? So we we defined it, and we said that though we cannot fully comprehend it, because of the revelation that God gave us through his word, we can define and describe it to a certain extent. And so we went into our Wayside doctrinal statement, and we looked at Wayside's definition of Trinity, which is a pretty classic, consistent definition across Christianity. And here's what it says. It says, we believe in one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, identical in nature, distinct but harmonious in function. And so we talked about this is our definition of Trinity, and this is going to be our definition that we are going to use all month and be continually reminding you of that. And within that definition, we talked about that there's three things that any Christian understanding of Trinity has to affirm. And the first one was singularity, that we believe as Christians in one God. We are monotheistic. So there's a singularity aspect to the Trinity. The second thing we affirmed is plurality. We believe in one God who exists eternally in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have singularity within the Trinity. We have plurality within the Trinity. And then lastly and thirdly, we have equality. We have equality amongst the divine members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because they are identical in nature. Whereas they may be distinct in function and in relationship, they are identical in nature, identical in their Godness, so to speak, and therefore equal. And so that was the what of the doctrine of Trinity. And then we moved on to the why. Why do we believe in this doctrine? And we talked about how the main reason we believe in the doctrine of Trinity is because of Jesus Christ and the testimony of the Holy Scriptures. That we do not become Trinitarians by looking out at creation. We do not become Trinitarians by logic or by reason or by doing basic arithmetic. We become Trinitarian because we take the revelation of God in his scripture as the ultimate truth of who he is. And he has revealed himself as a triune God. And so that is the why. And then we finished our time by looking at the how. How did the doctrine of Trinity develop in the early church? Because as we know, it didn't happen overnight. We know that the word Trinity does not exist in Scripture. And so the way we answer this question is the doctrine doctrine of Trinity developed very carefully. It was developed very carefully. As the early church, in an attempt to be as true to Scripture as they could possibly be, slowly began to construct a vocabulary and concepts that could explain this mystery but biblical truth of a God that exists in Trinity. And so that is the what, the why, and the how of the doctrine of Trinity. And that's what we covered in an extensive fashion last week. So if you were here, hopefully that reorients you. And if you were not here, then good luck. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You'll be fine. So hopefully that gets you caught up to speed, right? And you can go back and watch that sermon at a later time to fill in the blanks. Now, in regards to this week, I want to try to accomplish two main things. And the first thing I want to accomplish is I want us to look at the Trinity in salvation. 
Because many of us may have never looked at our salvation through the lens of a God that is triune. And yet that is probably the clearest picture we get of the Trinity. is his activity in our salvation. So we're going to focus on the roles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit within our salvation. And then the second thing I'd like to do is once we go through those roles, I want to draw some applications that can be drawn from each member of the divine Godhead. What can we learn about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that actually applies to us in May of 2015? And to accomplish this, I'm going to have to talk about each member of the Trinity individually. But you really can't do that, can you? Because we worship one God. So every action that is taken by one divine member of the Trinity is an action that is taken by the entire Trinity. They do not function separate from one another. They do not function independent of one another. They act as one, yet with distinctions. That is the mystery. That is why every week you walk in during the series, you're going to get a bulletin. It's going to look exactly the same. And it's going to say exactly the same things, except the date. It's going to say, Holy Trinity, the mystery of God. This is the mystery. This is the divine tension of the singularity and plurality within God. That because of Scripture must be defended, though it cannot be comprehended. It must be defended, though it cannot be comprehended. And that makes it very difficult to illustrate and explain, doesn't it? And yet, fortunately, there I was a couple of weeks ago at the Tobin Center downtown watching a concert. My mother sings in the San Antonio Choral Society, and they were putting on a concert in conjunction with YOSA, Youth of San Antonio Orchestra. Youth Orchestra of San Antonio, which a number of Waysiders are part of, which was really neat. And so there I was, I'm sitting up front, and I'm watching the, 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 I'm watching the concert, and I start watching the various sections of the orchestra, and a light bulb goes off of my head, and I say, there it is, Trinity Illustration. I live for this stuff. I was so excited. My mom thought I was really enjoying the concert, and I was just like, I got an illustration. Because while at the symphony, I noticed that each section of the orchestra played together in unity to form one harmony. But they play different notes. And different sections within the orchestra would take the lead at different times. Sometimes the string section rose to the forefront and the percussion and the woodwinds took a step back and played more of a complementary role. Sometimes the percussion was more pronounced and the strings and the brass took a step back. All the while, though, the sections played together in perfect harmony as part of the one song. And when you think about the roles of the Trinity, especially within salvation, they all play the same divine song from the same divine sheet of music in perfect harmony, but they might play different instruments and different sections might lead at different points in time in this one song of redemption. So with that as an opening... Let's, let's start off our time by looking at the role of God the Father within salvation. God the Father. And we start with God the Father because the Father is the ultimate source of our salvation. He's the source of our salvation. 
Now this morning, as you think about the redemptive work of God in Trinity, I want you to try to think about it in the context of a rescue mission. Kind of saving private Ryan type atmosphere we have going on here. Because we are prisoners of war. We are prisoners of war who have rebelled, we have sinned, we have rebelled against our homeland, against our country, and we have joined the enemy to fight against our home. We have committed treason against our homeland, and because of that, we should get what traitors get, and that is death. That's what we deserve. And the irony is this. The irony is that though we enlisted to fight for the enemy, we ended up becoming a hostage of the enemy. We enlisted the fight for the enemy, but we ended up in chains as hostages of the enemy. And now we find ourselves unable to go back home and deserving of death, even if we could. There is no hope for rescue. I mean, who would rescue a bunch of treasonous rebels who enlisted to fight for the enemy? Who would do such a thing? God would. And God did. And it begins with the Father as he acts as the source of our salvation, as the divine general who designs and initiates the plan of salvation. He designs and initiates the ultimate plan of redemption. We read this in places like Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 and Romans 8. The Father designs the rescue mission and he initiates it by sending the Son. He sends the Son and He sends the Spirit to execute and accomplish the eternal plan of redemption. And why? Why rescue hostages who are treasonous and in rebellion? Well, Scripture tells us He does it out of love, which is miraculous. Maybe the most well-known text in the entire New Testament, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave. One thing that's interesting but oftentimes overlooked is how loving God the Father is. How loving he is. We oftentimes look at Jesus as our loving brother who satisfies our angry and just mad all the time father. And yet it is the Father who is initiating the plan of salvation. It is the Father who has is, who is put together this, div- this divine rescue mission. And He has done it out of love. We see this again in 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son, sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is actually the primary divine member that's ascribed the attribute of love. It's the Father. It's incredible. So when you think of God the Father, He is the source. He's the source of our salvation. And this is hard for many people because through the years I've talked with with many folks, many folks who who have a hard time relating to God the Father. They They have a hard time relating to God the Father because they tend to see Him through the prism of their earthly father, Right? They tend to understand God the Father through the lens of their earthly father. And while that may be a blessing, that can also be a complete disaster. Because your father may have been abusive. Your father may have been absentee. Your father may have 
left you and abandoned you. So then Christians talk about understanding God as father. And and they say, no thanks. I've got a father. And he's a total nightmare. And I don't need another one. I don't need another father. And the truth is, is while your earthly father may be a complete nightmare, our heavenly father is not. Our heavenly father is the furthest thing from a nightmare that there is. He is the source of our salvation as he is moved by his righteousness and his love to send the son so that we can be reconciled to him. And so when you think about what it is to be a father, don't get your cues from your earthly father. Get them from your heavenly father. Because it is our heavenly father that gives fatherhood in general both meaning and guidance and direction. And so when we look to our Father who art in heaven, what can we learn to help us as fathers who art on earth, who reside here? And this is a topic that's near and dear to me. For one, because I'm a father. I have two sons. And then secondly, because I spent eight years teaching and coaching in the public schools. And I've spent three years in ministry here at Wayside. And I honestly believe one of the greatest disasters we have in our society or that we even have in our world is a lack of godly fathers. It's a lack of godly fathers. And it touches, friends, it touches everything. It touches everything. I've had so many conversations through the years with high school students, college students, young adults, male and female, who have talked to me about either their broken or completely non-existent relationship with their, fam- with their father. And the results of that are disastrous. They're disastrous. We have plenty of biological dads walking around this earth, but we have a shortage of godly fathers. And we need men who will rise up to the occasion and be the godly father and the godly husband that they were designed to be, that God designed them to be. So with that being said, I have three exhortations that we can learn from God the Father that inform us as fathers here on this earth. So this is primarily meant for dads, but it can also be for anyone who is in a, in a, a position of leadership or mentoring or shepherding. Number one, as God the Father is present and intimately engaged with the Son and the Spirit, we as fathers should have a ministry of presence and engagement in our family. In all my years of coaching and at Wayside, I have never had a conversation with somebody where they've looked at me and said, you know, Michael, I just wish my dad hadn't cared about me so much. You know, Michael, I just, I just wish my father wouldn't have invested so much of his time into me. I've never heard that in my entire life. I've never sat down with a female who said, Michael, you know all those dates my dad took me on to show me the love of a father? Those were such a waste of time. Never once have I had a conversation like that. We as fathers have a ministry of presence and engagement in our family where we know them. We know them. They are our primary ministry. Number two, as as God the Father initiates the plan of salvation, as he takes the lead within the Trinity, we as fathers are to have an active role of leadership within our families. We as fathers are to lead, not with a domineering or demeaning spirit, 
but with a humble attitude and a humble leadership that, that, bring, that elicits respect and that engenders devotion. We as fathers are to set the tone and provide an atmosphere where everybody in our family can flourish. As I used to tell my players all the time, don't be a thermometer, be the thermostat. Don't be a thermometer, be a thermostat. Don't reflect the temperature, set the temperature. Actively set the temperature and set a temperature in which everyone can thrive. And then number three, as God the Father disciplines us when we stray and yet shows us immense grace and unending love along the way, we as fathers are to do the same. We are to correct and discipline our children, not with an iron fist that leads to terror or with a critical spirit that demoralizes, but rather with a, a firmness that is rooted in love that seeks to lead them to repentance. Proverbs thirteen twenty four says, the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. A lack of discipline by a father is a lack of love for their children. There's no other way to say it. And yet, while we need to be fathers who discipline, we also need to be those who show grace. Because a lack of grace shows a deficient understanding of the gospel. A lack of grace shows a deficient understanding of the gospel. And that is true for everyone, not just fathers. When I meet someone who does not exhibit grace, then my understanding is that they do not understand the gospel. They do not understand the gospel. We are to point our family to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to point our family to the gospel of grace. And that is going to be a tough sell if they have never seen that revealed in and through us. It's going to be a tough sell. So presence, leadership, integrity, discipline, and grace. Those are just some of the many aspects that God the Father that the aspects of God the Father, who not only is our source of salvation, but the one who gives fatherhood in general meaning and direction. So that is the Father. He is the source. Next, we have God the Son, the eternal second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is the sacrifice for sins that secures our salvation. He is the sacrifice for sins that secures our salvation. I would imagine you've probably heard of Jesus. He's the center of Christianity. We are Christians, right? We're Christians. And as you've maybe thought about this series or thought about the Trinity, you may have at some point asked yourself, hey, why do we seem to give Jesus a more prominent role in the worship service than the Father and the Son? Why do we seem to talk more about Jesus and sing more about Jesus? I mean, we're Trinitarians, right? So why, not, why are we not talking about the Father and the Spirit more? And here's how I would respond to that. We are to worship. We should worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit because they are all God and there is one God. And they are therefore worthy of our praise. But it is my understanding that it is by design, even within the Trinity, that the work of Christ be central to our worship. Amen. And here's why. And I think I can explain this. I could go to a number of places, but I just want to go to one text. In 2 Peter 1, verse 20, the scriptures talk about how this, the, the author of the Holy Bible is ultimately the Holy Spirit. That he superintends to write the scriptures. 
So the Spirit of God is the writer of the Word of God. And yet we also find a text in John 5, 39, where Jesus is debating with the Pharisees. Shocker, right? So he's butting heads with the Pharisees, and here's what he says. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. They testify about me. So follow me here. The Bible, which was written by the Holy Spirit, is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the central figure of the Bible. He is the one who became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and took on flesh. Jesus is the one who assumed humanity. He's the one who lived a sinless life. He's the one who willingly went to the cross to die for our sins. He's the one who was raised from the dead three days later. And there is no other name by which we are saved other than Jesus Christ. He is the center of our worship, and that is okay, because because here's the amazing thing. When we worship Christ, we worship him to the glory and the praise of the Father who sent him. So when we are worshiping Christ, we are bringing praise and glory and honor to the Father who sent the Son. And when we worship Christ, we are doing it by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit who testifies about Jesus. So as I worship Jesus, there is Trinitarian worship going on to the praise of the Father by the work of the Spirit. And I give all three worship when I understand their role within my salvation. Does that make sense? It's Trinitarian and it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And so with that being said, what's the primary role of Jesus Christ in our salvation? He is the sacrifice for sins that secures our salvation. He's the Lamb of God. John 1.29, as John the Baptist sees him, says, there he goes, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ purchases our salvation by his blood, removing the penalty of sin, removing the barrier between us and God the Father. So as the Father's the source of salvation, the divine general that initiates, that initiates the plan of salvation, Jesus Christ is the Navy SEAL. He's special ops. And he is uniquely qualified to carry out this mission. And you know why he's uniquely qualified? Because he's the one and only God-man. That's why. He's the one and only God-man. Jesus Christ is the member of the Trinity who took on humanity. And in doing so, became our picture of God, our payment for sin, and our pathway to righteousness. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 so clearly states, He who knew no sin, He being Jesus, He who knew no sin became sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And I actually messed that text up. He made Him who knew no sin. He being the Father, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, as the perfect God-man, is able to take our sin upon Himself, thus satisfying God's holiness and righteousness, and at the same time, He is able to deliver His righteousness to us as the perfect God-man, imputed to us, given to us as we come to faith in Him. That's the channel. I come to faith in Christ. He takes my sin 
And he gives me his righteousness and he reconciles me to God as the one and only perfect God-man. And when you think about the goal of the Christian life, the goal of the Christian life, and really even the end result, it's one and the same. The goal of the Christian life and the end result of the Christian life are really the same thing. It is to be like Christ. Romans 8, 29, an amazing text where Paul writes about the Father's eternal plan of salvation. He states this truth. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. The point of the Christian life and the ultimate result of the Christian life are one and the same. It is to be like Christ. It is to be like Christ. So what does it mean and what does it look like to be like Christ? Because that seems like an impossible assignment. Seems like an impossible assignment. And it is, this side of heaven. But, but the Apostle John, in chapter 1, gives us some insights into what a Christ-centered life will be characterized by. And we find that in verse 16. John writes this, For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. grace. For the law came through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John tells us that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of grace and truth. He is grace and truth in their fullness. And we as his followers are to live a life that is characterized by grace and truth as well. And look, I know that nobody in here is Jesus, right? No one in here is Jesus, which is exactly why we all need Jesus. It's the entire point. It's why we're here. We need him. We never outgrow the gospel. I don't care if you pastor for 50 years and you've told the gospel a million times. You need it as much as anybody else. You never outgrow the gospel. We all need Jesus. And I also know that grace and truth seem to reside in tension, don't they? And we all struggle with this. We feel it at home. We feel it at our workplace. How do we stand for truth and yet be people who are full of grace in a world that's constantly changing, in a culture that's constantly turning against us? I mean, when I look at Jesus, sometimes he heals the sinner, the undeserving sinner, and sometimes he's flipping over a table. So how am I to know which one to do? This is difficult. This is hard. And that is exactly the way he designed it. It's exactly the way he designed it. You know why? Because it forces us to depend on him. It forces me minute by minute, second by second, moment by moment to seek the Lord's leading in my life through the Holy Spirit in me, through his word, so that I can respond to situations accordingly. It's not a, hey, I came to faith, I know Jesus, so now I know what to do in every situation. It is a constant dependence upon him that is designed to be that way. And so as we live out grace and truth side by side, we can only do that in total dependence upon Jesus. So, so Jesus Christ, 
He is, our, he is the one who secures our salvation as he dies for our sins. And we as his followers are to be characterized by the things that characterized him, grace and truth. So that's God the Father. That's God the Son. So much more can be said, right? I mean, we're just, this is the proverbial tip of the iceberg. But we now come to the third member of the Trinity, the eternal Holy Spirit of God. And I think the biggest mistake many Christians make when it comes to the Holy Spirit is not recognizing the Spirit as being personal. Not recognizing the Spirit as a person. We tend to view the Spirit as some type of force or energy coming from God and don't recognize His personality. And yet Scripture tells us that the Spirit has many personal characteristics. He has His own intelligence. He manifests Emotions. Think of Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit who has sealed you, right? In Acts, it talks about them lying to the Spirit. You can lie to the Holy Spirit. It didn't work out well for them, so I don't recommend it. But Scripture says he demonstrates his own will as he sovereignly selects spiritual gifts for different people. And he chooses. And he helps us as the other counselor. So knowing the Spirit as personal is extremely important. He's not just an energy, he's a person. And when I understand him as personal, and I understand him as God, I can now understand what he does in salvation. I can now understand what he does in salvation. And the Spirit is the means of our salvation, and he is the seal of our salvation. He is the means and the seal. Another way to say that would be that the Holy Spirit initiates the Christian life, and the Holy Spirit perpetuates the Christian life. The Holy Spirit initiates the Christian life, and the Holy Spirit perpetuates the Christian life. Now how? Well, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, writes these words. He says, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, and we see this throughout the New Testament, the only way someone can come to faith in Jesus Christ, which is necessary for salvation, is for the Holy Spirit to enter in and cause that to happen. He is the person that enters in and causes us and brings us to faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. He is the one who applies Christ's work to us by bringing us to faith in him. Okay? You, let, me, let me explain again using my divine rescue mission analogy. I know you're waiting for this. The father is the divine general. He designs the plan of redemption. He initiates it by sending the son. The, the son is the willing sacrifice. The special ops Navy SEAL that accomplishes the mission by taking out the enemy. He takes out the enemy. He takes out sin and the penalty of sin. The Spirit is then the reinforcement helicopter. You know what I'm talking about. Follow me here. The reinforcement helicopter that flies in out of nowhere, doesn't even make a sound, landing on the ground, goes up. Doors open, looks at the hostages and says, hey guys, you're coming with me. We're going home. And the hostages say, no, I'm a rebel. I'm a fraud. I'm a traitor. I deserve death. 
No, no, listen. This mission is for you. You're the mission. We're coming to get you. Get in the helicopter. Let's roll. And they go in the helicopter. And the doors close. And the helicopter leaves. The Holy Spirit helicopter. (laughs) And flies back home. And along the way, the hostages are ministered to. And their wounds that they've suffered while prisoners of war are being healed. They're being treated all along the way until they arrive home where they are treated as family. That is the divine rescue mission of the Trinity. The Spirit initiates our Christian life and the Spirit perpetuates our Christian life. Now, how does He perpetuate our Christian life? Well, there's so many ways and we're limited in time, which is unfortunate. He indwells us, lives inside of us. If you can imagine that. God, the Spirit inside of us. He comforts us. The Scripture says He intercedes for us when we don't know what to say. He gives us spiritual gifts. He seals us for all eternity, securing our salvation once and for all. He conforms us to the image of the Son, as we read in Romans 8. And it is the Spirit that will ultimately resurrect us in our glorified bodies as He resurrected Jesus Christ Himself. He initiates And he perpetuates. That's what the Spirit does. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, how how are some ways that understanding the Spirit impacts and informs my life? And once again, there are so many things that could be said here. And I hope you go study on your own. But two jump out at me. And And this is the last thing. One is how humble the Spirit is. The humility of the Spirit is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. This is God we're talking about, people. This is the eternal third member of the Trinity. This is the one who initiates and perpetuates the spiritual life, and yet He is okay with being in the background. Do you realize that? He's okay with it. That's where He wants to be. He writes the Scriptures. The Scriptures point to Christ. He is all about bringing glory to the Father through the Son. That is what he does, and he loves it. He seeks not his own praise, though he is worthy of it. When I I think about that, it actually reminds me of the Academy Awards. You ever watch the Academy Awards where they're about to announce Best Actor, and they've got the five people there, the nominees, and then they announce the winner, and what do all the losers do? They all smile and clap. Oh, we're just so happy. Ah." I wish we could see their real emotion, right? Because their real emotion is probably something like, I can't believe that person won. you got to be kidding me. I was better. That should be me. And yet, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, guys, he's clapping. And he means it. He means it. He's all in. He's fired up when Jesus is praised. He's fired up when someone comes to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. He takes great delight in the attention the Son and the Father get. He wrote the Scriptures and He mentions Himself the least. It's mind-blowing. And the Spirit teaches us something that is so essential for us to understand. That our life is to point people to Christ. The goal of our life is to point people to Christ because that's what the Spirit does. And the goal of our life is to bring glory and honor to Christ because that's what the Spirit does. 
It's not about us. It's about pointing people to Jesus by the work of the Spirit. Secondly, it's vital for us to remember that the Spirit is the one who brought about our faith. It is the Spirit who did the work. And I think that is actually great encouragement when it comes to evangelism. I think it's great encouragement when it comes to evangelism. Dr. Stanley Toussaint, one of my favorite professors at Dallas Seminary, almost 90 years old, just retired, great guy. And he used to tell, t- tell a story where he says, you know, he says, guys, you know, when I preach, I look out at the sanctuary and I just imagine they're all empty barrels. And there's, and there's some gunpowder that the Holy Spirit has placed in some of those. And so all I do is I just strike matches, I light matches, and I just throw them out in the sanctuary. And then I let the Holy Spirit do his work. I think that's a great picture, right? And this is important because I know many of us are acutely aware of our inadequacies and our insecurities when it comes to showing our faith or preaching the gospel to people. And yet we must remember that people are not saved because of what we say or do. We're not that good and we're not that bad. People are saved through the work of the Holy Spirit and he uses what we say and what we do to bring people to faith. He gets the glory, he gets the praise, and we get to share in being a part of the divine rescue mission. People who were formerly traitors, who were taken home, now get to help with the divine rescue mission. He enlists us. It's amazing. So in closing this morning, when you think about salvation and the movement within the Trinity, it's kind of like a boomerang. It's a a Trinitarian boomerang where it goes from the Father, who's the sender, to the Son, who is the sacrifice, to the Spirit, who who seals and applies the work of Christ, And then through the Spirit, we ascend, we return through the Son and His work on the cross back to the Father where we are reconciled. It's a Trinitarian boomerang. It's the divine rescue mission and its mission accomplished. And it is only possible because God exists in Trinity, which is mesmerizing. As I said last week, the point of studying the Trinity is not to fill our minds with knowledge. It's to fill our hearts with praise. It's to fill our hearts with praise. And so I want to end this morning by reading the lyrics of an old hymn. Don't you love old hymns? From the 17th century by a guy named Isaac Watts called We Give Immortal Praise. I want you to listen to these words because I think it really captures what was said here this morning. It says, we give immortal praise to God the Father's love. For all our comforts here and better hopes above, he sent his own eternal son to die for sins that man had done. To God the Son belongs immortal glory too, who bought us with his blood from everlasting woe. And now he lives and now he reigns and sees the fruit of all his pains. To God the Spirit's name, immortal worship give, whose new creating power makes the dead sinner live. His work completes the great design and fills my soul with joy divine. Almighty God, to thee be endless honors done, the undivided three, the mysterious one. Where reason fails with all her powers, their their faith prevails and love adores. Let's pray.
God, we come before you this morning just humbled to be in your presence, just humbled to know you. And we praise you, Father, for sending the Son. We praise you, Father, for not leaving us in our sin, but loving us so much that you are the architect, the divine architect, the general who devised the plan of redemption that was set in motion. And God, the Son, Jesus Christ, we praise you for being the willing sacrifice that freely chose to come, leaving his place in heaven, coming, putting on flesh, taking on humanity, walking on this earth, being spit upon by the people he created, and willingly going to the cross to die for our sin, to restore us to the Father, to reconcile us, to make us right. And God the Spirit, we give you praise. We give you praise for the, for the way that you entered in and brought us to faith in the Son. How you changed our hearts. And how through your work, we, can, we get to receive the gift of salvation from God the Father through the Son by the work of the Spirit. And then we get to return through the Son to the Father and offer praise. So God, we thank you for our salvation and for your triune activity of the one true God within that salvation. It is beyond our comprehension, but it is not beyond us understanding that you love us and that you came to get us. Thank you, God. Thank you for your saving work. And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. We've got prayer partners up here who would love to chat with you, love to pray with you. I'll be up here, love to chat with you. Um, thank you again. Praise God for what he's done. Next week, we're going to look at the image, how we are made in the image of God when God exists in Trinity. So I hope to see you back. See you later.